A warning. This episode features discussions of murder and gore that may be disturbing for some listeners. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. On February 17, 1977, Helen Brock checked out of the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Her physician recommended she lose a bit of weight and get more exercise. Besides that, she was given a clean bill of health. Before leaving, Helen visited the gift shop, where she bought a soap dish and an elegant jewelry box. As the widow of Frank Brock, heir to the Brock's candy fortune, the purchase hardly put a dent in her bank account. As the clerk wrapped her gifts, Helen told her, Can you please hurry? My houseman is waiting. Those were her last words. After Helen Brock exited the gift shop, she was never seen or heard from again. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find every episode of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Gone in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. In this episode, we will explore the disappearance of Helen Brock, the socialite widow of candy magnate Frank Brock. She checked out of the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota on February 19, 1977, and was never seen again. There are conflicting theories about the disappearance, even among the detectives assigned to Helen Brock's case. The first theory concerns Richard Bailey, Helen's lover, and the only man ever convicted in her disappearance. This theory suggests that Richard Bailey conspired with his shady associates in the Chicago Horse Mafia to have Helen murdered, although he didn't pull the trigger himself. It was first proposed by prosecutors attempting to secure a conviction for Bailey. The second theory is that Jack Matlick, Helen's houseman, murdered Helen himself after learning that she planned to move out of state and terminate his employment. The third theory, and our personal favorite, combines the most convincing elements of theories one and two. These three theories all agree on one thing— Helen Brock was murdered. 
She was declared missing by the Chicago Police Department in 1977 and legally dead in 1984. But Helen's body was never found. And without a body, it's very difficult to solve a crime. There is plenty of information available about the case, including sworn affidavits from many of the suspects. But each time a person of interest has gone on record regarding Helen's disappearance, it was to cut a deal with prosecutors. So they may have made everything up or simply were saying what they thought prosecutors wanted to hear. The testimony they've delivered is compelling and incriminating, but it's nearly impossible to take it at face value. Before we get into the confusions swirling around the disappearance, though, let's examine the woman at the heart of all the rumors. In 1950, Helen Voorhees was going on 39. Although she was still beautiful and vivacious, with a striking head of red hair, it seemed like her best years were behind her. Born to a working-class family in rural Ohio, Helen was married and divorced by age 21 and dreamed of a life beyond her modest surroundings. And to some extent, she found one in Miami Beach, Florida, where she was a regular at the Indian Creek Country Club. But Helen wasn't the wife of a wealthy businessman mingling with other socialites over canapes and cocktails. Helen worked as a coat check girl. Until one day she caught the eye of Frank Brock, the co-owner of E.J. Brock & Sons. His company was famous for candy corn, the ubiquitous red and white striped mints that nobody likes, and conversation hearts, the heart-shaped candies embossed with loving phrases. This candy empire had made Frank Brock enormously wealthy. He was also going through a divorce, and despite a 22-year age difference, a May-December romance blossomed. In 1951, Frank took Helen as his third wife. By all accounts, their marriage was a happy one, and Helen finally got to experience the life of privilege she'd always wanted. Their main residence was a sprawling estate in Glenview, Illinois, just outside Chicago. But they maintained a vacation home in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And since they had no children, the couple spent their time and considerable fortune traveling and socializing. When Frank Brock died in 1970, Helen was only 58, and she was the primary beneficiary of her husband's estate. She received roughly $20 million, around $130 million in today's dollars, which at the time made her one of Chicago's richest and most prominent citizens. As an affluent and relatively famous widow, Helen continued to take full advantage of her life of privilege. She spent most of her time shopping, decorating her homes, and most of all, socializing with her friends. She reportedly loved gossip and was known to spend hours talking on the phone. She also took great care of her physical health. She got most of her exercise in the form of dancing, and she didn't seem to drink or use drugs of any kind. The rest of her free time, she spent with horses. (laughs) 
Helen had always been passionate about animals. She even founded an organization to rehabilitate injured animals and educate the public about animal rights. But before Frank died, he introduced his wife to the sport of horse racing, and her attention was increasingly focused on the equestrian world. Helen loved watching the majestic animals run and train. She also adopted and rehabilitated several retired racehorses. Frank, in life and death, was able to give Helen everything she always wanted. But he also gave her a passion for a sport that would ultimately connect her with the Chicago Horse Mafia and lead to her death and disappearance. But Frank wasn't the only man with a big influence on Helen's life. After her husband's death, she became increasingly reliant on one particular employee, Jack Matlick. Jack Matlick had originally been employed by Frank Brock as a handyman, gardener, and driver. When Frank died, Helen kept Jack as her houseman, a role in which he essentially acted as her personal assistant. Matlick had a close relationship with Helen, but it reportedly wasn't romantic. Some people think he was in love with her, but Jack was married with three daughters. In fact, his entire family lived rent-free in a suburban house owned by Brock. Although Matlick worked in the capacity of an assistant, he was known to advise Helen on financial matters, and sometimes they even stayed up reading together, with Jack wearing an old pair of Helen's glasses. Besides being well-known around Chicago as Helen's houseman, Jack was also known for being a cold, unfriendly loner. This may have stemmed from his unhappy childhood. Little is known about his early life, but we know his father abandoned the family. We also know he spent almost two years in prison for car theft. And, as we'll learn, Jack Matlick maintained connections with the violent Chicago Horse Mafia. While it might seem odd that Helen would trust someone like Matlick, one thing we know about Helen is that she was not an excellent judge of character. This became resoundingly evident when she started dating Richard Bailey, a full-fledged member of the notorious Chicago Horse Mafia. If you were wealthy and had any involvement in the horse business in Chicago, you were bound to meet someone from the Chicago Horse Mafia, a loose-knit group of gangsters, criminals, and lowlifes who either owned stables or sold horses in and around Chicago. They were notorious for conducting insurance scams and selling nearly worthless horses to wealthy, inexperienced buyers at an exorbitant markup. By 1973, Frank Brock had been dead for three years, and despite her vast wealth and active social life, Helen, going on 62 years old, longed for an intimate relationship. Richard Bailey sensed it the moment he laid eyes on her at a dinner party and made his move. At this point, Richard Bailey was thriving. He kept an apartment in an exclusive Chicago building called the Lake Point Tower and owned a horse farm and stables near Helen's estate. 
Though he was 17 years her junior, Richard Bailey was handsome and exceedingly charming. He doted on Helen and made her feel special. Interestingly, Jack Matlick was the only one in Helen's orbit who didn't trust Bailey. But Helen had no reason to think that this handsome young man's intentions were anything less than honorable. The couple traveled, dined in fine restaurants, and were even known to enter and win dance contests. On the surface, their relationship appeared normal, even loving. But while Bailey may have been a good dancer, where he really excelled was in seducing and swindling older women. Richard Bailey was a gigolo. He was so adept at swindling older women that he created businesses designed for just that purpose. A driving school, a cosmetics company, even a clinic designed to help people quit smoking. These businesses helped him meet and seduce wealthy older women. They brought in decent money. It was Bailey's horse stable, however, that proved most lucrative. He gave riding lessons and boarded horses for clients, but it was his practice of buying injured, lame, or less than perfect horses and reselling them to wealthy clients at an astronomical markup that made him rich. Bailey already had plenty of hustles. He didn't necessarily need to use his relationship with Helen for money, but once a con man, always a con man. In 1975, after dating Helen for two years, he and his brother sold Helen three racehorses for the sum of $98,000, despite having paid less than $18,000 themselves. The horses were certainly not worth what Helen paid, but she didn't seem to notice or care. It appeared that Bailey had found a new victim. Unfortunately, he decided to push his luck. In 1977, Bailey convinced Helen to purchase a stable of horses from Silas Jane, the most powerful member of the horse mafia and a frequent business associate of Bailey's, this time for a considerably larger sum. Helen agreed but something about the deal gave her second thoughts. Helen hired an independent trainer to appraise the deal. After one look at her new horses, he told Helen she'd been scammed. Helen was furious. She almost certainly confronted Bailey about the swindle, but we know she didn't alert the authorities. Instead, Helen visited the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota for a routine checkup. Maybe she was planning to alert the authorities when she returned to Chicago. And maybe not. Either way, she'd never get the chance. On February 17, 1977, the morning she checked out of the Mayo Clinic, Helen Brock disappeared and was never seen or heard from again. Coming up, we explore the wild, disturbing theories about what exactly happened to the missing widow. Now back to the story. 
Helen Brock's boyfriend, Richard Bailey, scammed her out of a massive amount of money in 1977, along with his horse mafia associate, Silas Jane. Then, Helen discovered she'd been had, and shortly after that, she disappeared. In the immediate aftermath of the disappearance, investigators interviewed everyone from Bailey to Helen's houseman, Jack Matlick. It was Bailey that raised their hackles. He was questioned about his failure to report Helen's disappearance. And the only excuse he mustered was he figured she had simply gotten tired of him and moved on. Not a convincing argument for someone who, by all accounts, was still Helen's lover at the time of her disappearance. Bailey had apparently made her appointment at the Mayo Clinic. The couple were even planning to move to Florida together. But the police could not find evidence to tie Bailey or any suspects to the crime. And so the case slowly went cold. Until more than a decade later, in 1989, when Richard Bailey tried his horse con on the wrong woman. The woman who brought Bailey down was Barbara Morris. Like Helen, she was a wealthy widow, and Richard Bailey showered her with gifts and attention. And just as with Helen, he tried to swindle her in a horse deal. In fact, this swindle unfolded almost identically to Helen's. Bailey asked Morris to borrow $50,000 to purchase a horse, which she gladly gave him. He promised to pay back the loan once he sold the horse at a higher value. But then, Bailey got greedy. He tried to convince Morris to purchase a horse for $150,000, which she had no intention of doing, until Bailey paid her back the original $50,000. As Bailey got pushy, Morris became increasingly suspicious. She contacted a friend who suggested she draw up a contract with Bailey, which she presented to him a few nights later over dinner. Bailey erupted. He became furious that she would involve other people in their private affairs and refused to sign. At this point, Morris began looking into Bailey's past, and she didn't like what she found, especially when it came to his relationship with Helen Brock. So Morris contacted the police department. From there, it was only a matter of time. With the help of the FBI, the police tapped Bailey's phone, which provided evidence of his fraudulent horse schemes. By 1994, they finally had all they needed. They arrested Richard Bailey. Ross Hugie, a veterinarian involved with the horse mafia, was also arrested. And he threatened to divulge everything he knew, enough to decimate the horse mafia and put everyone behind bars. During the trial, prosecutors had no trouble connecting Richard Bailey to several fraudulent horse sales. In fact, 13 other women came forward, providing evidence that they had all been swindled. But investigators were determined to do more than bring down Bailey and his horse mafia associates. They wanted to finally, after 17 years, convict someone, anyone, in connection with Helen Brock's disappearance. 
With the help of testimony from several men connected with the horse mafia seeking sentencing leniency, prosecutors proposed that Richard Bailey had conspired with the horse mafia to have Helen killed. Our first theory is this very story, which prosecutors laid out in court to convict Richard Bailey. According to the prosecutors, Bailey and his associates were afraid that after Helen realized she'd been duped by her lover, she might go to authorities. After Helen confronted Bailey about the horse scheme, he relayed the argument to Silas Jane, the head of the horse mafia and his partner in this con. It was Jane who told Bailey he wanted Helen gone. But Richard Bailey wasn't a killer. So in a half-hearted attempt to solve the Helen problem, he offered two of Silas's associates, Joe Plemons and Ken Hansen, $5,000 each to kill her. The two men turned Bailey down. The sum was absurdly low for such a high-profile job. Bailey, content, figured he could simply tell Silas he'd tried and smooth everything over with Helen. But Silas didn't go for it. Instead, he ordered his nephew, Frank Jane Jr., to make Helen disappear. At this point, Richard Bailey also decided to disappear. To Florida. This is where the narrative gets a bit fuzzy. It's not clear whether or not Bailey remained involved with subsequent events up in Chicago. Prosecutors implied that he did. Bailey insisted that he had cut his losses and had nothing to do with what happened next, though he heard the details through the horse mafia grapevine. Regardless, the narrative is far from over. Back in Chicago, Frank Jane Jr. snuck into Helen's Glenview estate with four horse mafia associates, including Lee Ryder, a Jane gang thug and former cop, and Ken Hansen and Joe Plemons, whom Bailey had originally tried to hire to carry out the hit. The small crew beat Helen to the brink of death. Then they burgled her home, taking valuable artwork, jewelry, and millions of dollars in untraceable bearer bonds. Next, they stuffed Helen's body in the trunk of Frank Jane's Cadillac and drove her to Ken Hansen's stable. Once they arrived, they opened the trunk to discover that Helen was still moving. Kurt Hansen, Ken's brother, handed Joe Plemons a gun and told him to finish her off. They transferred her body to the trunk of Kurt Hansen's station wagon. Then Plemons, Jane Jr., and the Hansen brothers drove across the state line to Gary, Indiana, straight to a steel factory where the Spilatro brothers, their business associates, had connections. Then they put Helen's body on a cart and pushed it into the blast furnace, where it was turned into liquid steel. And that is why Helen's body was never found. I know what you're thinking, and yes, this scenario is completely insane, 
horrifying and involves so many people and moving parts that it seems preposterous it could have gone unsolved by investigators for more than a decade. But it's not so preposterous when you consider the people involved. The Jane family, or Jane gang as they preferred to be known, wielded the most power and influence within the Chicago horse mafia. And the head of the Jane gang was Silas Jane. Silas, or Cy, was born in 1907 in Lake County, Illinois, a suburban area known for its horse farms and stables. In 1924, at age 17, Cy was convicted of rape. After serving a one-year sentence, he joined his brothers on the Jane Ranch and began his life in the horse business. The Jane brothers built their fortune by bringing in boxcars full of wild horses, illegally acquired from the West Coast, to Chicago, selling most to slaughterhouses to be ground into dog food, but keeping the finest ones to train for riding or selling to wealthy buyers. The value of a horse is a lot like the value of art. It's determined by how much someone will pay, which is why the industry attracts so many criminals and con men. If you can manipulate someone into trusting you, a horse's value is exactly what you say it is. And the Jane gang were master manipulators. Although their horse business was thriving, Silas and his brother George were known to have an extremely contentious relationship. By 1963, things had gotten so bad that they could no longer tolerate each other, and the two opened up rival stables across town. Unfortunately, it didn't solve their problems. And finally, in 1970, George Jane was killed at home while playing cards with his family. The men arrested for killing George testified that Cy had hired them. One even suggested that Cy wanted George kidnapped so he could finish off the job himself. Either way, Cy was convicted of conspiracy to commit murder and sentenced to prison. It was from his prison cell that he allegedly ordered his nephew, Frank Jane Jr., to make Helen Brock disappear, according to investigators. The Spilatro brothers, whose associates ran the steel factory where Helen's body was supposedly melted, were members of the horse mafia and associates of the Jane gang. They were even more violent than the Janes. They were experts at killing people and making them disappear. Their preferred method was turning bodies into liquid steel. The Hansen brothers and Joe Plemons, also part of the crew that reportedly killed Helen Brock, were part of the Chicago Horse Mafia, too. They were not as wealthy or notorious, but they were just as violent. Ken Hansen would later be convicted of the 1955 rape and murder of three boys. Lee Ryder was a cop gone rogue who now worked as a henchman and bodyguard for the Jane Gang. Compared to these people, Richard Bailey is practically a gentleman. But prosecutors were determined to pin the entire crime on him, perhaps because he was the man they had on trial. They claimed he orchestrated the horror show. While they never argued that he pulled the trigger on Helen, they accused him of conspiracy to commit murder. 
The fact that their argument was based on testimony provided by horse mafiosos seeking light sentences for their own crimes was a mark against the theory, as we've discussed before. But it was a strong enough case that Bailey's lawyer convinced his client to plead guilty to fraud charges. Doing so would mean his case bypassed a jury trial and, by extension, the possibility of life in prison. By avoiding a jury trial, however, Bailey also gave prosecutors a lower threshold for conviction. In a jury trial, prosecutors would have had to prove Bailey's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. In a sentencing hearing, prosecutors only had to demonstrate that Bailey had conspired to kill Brock by a preponderance of evidence preponderance of evidence, meaning it was more likely than not that he was guilty. And that's exactly what they proved. The judge sentenced Richard Bailey to 30 years behind bars. But there are a few issues with blaming the entire crime on Bailey. For one thing, prosecutors argued that Bailey hired Helen's hitman, when it was supposedly Silas Jane who successfully recruited them. Also, orchestrating a murder seems like the work of a violent person. But unlike the other people involved in this sordid affair, that doesn't fit Bailey's character. He had no history of violence, and Helen was worth a whole lot more to him alive than dead. Plus, there's no indication that he was the recipient of the spoils stolen from Helen's home, specifically the millions of dollars in bearer bonds. Was it possible that prosecutors, in their hunger to convict someone for killing Helen Brock, pressured horse mafiosos into spinning the story they wanted to hear? Silas Jane was already in jail for his other crimes, after all, so they couldn't hope to pin it on him. That idea is supported by the fact that there's another major hole in this story prosecutors presented. Namely, for the plan to succeed, Jack Matlick's participation would have been essential. Jack Matlick knew everything about Helen, from her schedule to where she kept her valuables. And in this scenario, he doesn't show up at all, neither as a help or a hindrance to the murders. Our next theory addresses that problem. Coming up, we'll examine a very different theory about Helen Brock's disappearance. One that focuses on Jack Matlick. Now, back to the story. On February 17, 1977, Helen Brock checked out of the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and was never seen or heard from again. And while Richard Bailey, Helen's lover at the time, was eventually convicted in her disappearance, there were some issues with the evidence used to convict him. Which brings us to our second theory about Helen's disappearance. Jack Matlick, her houseman, killed her. The evidence for the theory emerged slowly in the years following Bailey's conviction, and it was never officially brought to trial by investigators. 
Nevertheless, it's the most credible theory, according to most experts who have reviewed the case, and even according to several members of the Chicago Horse Mafia. Among the supporters of this theory are Ross Hughey, the veterinarian who testified at Bailey's trial and was subsequently imprisoned for his own illegal activities, several detectives who interviewed Matlick, and James Wysela Jr., an investigative reporter who wrote a detailed book about Helen's disappearance based on hours of interviews. The theory goes as follows. On February 17, 1977, the weekend Helen returned from the Mayo Clinic to Chicago, Helen told Matlick she was moving to Florida with Bailey and would no longer be requiring his services. Furious, Matlick snapped, killed Helen, and buried her body somewhere outside a small farm and animal sanctuary that Helen owned in Ohio, not far from her birthplace. There is more than a preponderance of evidence to suggest this might be exactly what happened. What makes this theory so compelling to investigators is Matlick's clear motive and the fact that everything he told authorities about his final weekend with Helen turned out to be a lie. Matlick told police that Helen flew from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, to O'Hare Airport in Chicago, where he picked her up. That weekend, Helen stayed at the Chicago estate with Matlick, during which time she kept to herself, refusing to even speak on the telephone. Then he dropped her off at O'Hare at 7 a.m. on Monday for a flight to Florida, where she'd planned to move with Richard Bailey. Police had no trouble finding holes in Matlick's story. First, when Helen left the Mayo Clinic gift shop the morning of February 17th, she told the clerk, my houseman is waiting, meaning Matlick must have picked her up in Minnesota and not from O'Hare, as he claimed. He was thus the last person to see her alive. Matlick is correct about Helen not speaking on the telephone, but it's doubtful she did that by choice. Several calls came in, but Matlick always answered the phone and told callers that Helen was unavailable. This is incredibly suspicious because Helen reportedly loved speaking on the phone. And if she were at home for an entire weekend, especially a weekend before moving to a new state, it's likely she would have been on the phone constantly, telling everyone her plans and saying goodbye. And as for Matlick driving Helen to O'Hare first thing Monday morning for her flight to Florida, Helen never flew in the morning, and she wasn't even going to Florida in the first place. In her last known correspondence, she had written to a friend from the Mayo Clinic that she was not planning to go to Florida for quite some time because she needed to get her affairs in order. Matlick was also having financial problems at the time of Helen's disappearance. He claims he revealed this to Helen over the weekend, and she took pity on him and wrote several checks totaling around $13,000. But after Helen's death, it was discovered that Matlick had forged her signature. The root of Matlick's financial problems were gambling debts he owed to the Spilatro brothers. You'll remember them as the mafia gangsters who disposed of bodies by turning them into liquid steel. In other words, 
he had some dangerous connections. Joyce Novak, Matlick's ex-wife, also testified in 1987 that Matlick had his own violent history. She told detectives that Matlick had a violent temper and beat her several times, once until she lost consciousness. So we know Matlick had a hair-trigger temper and was capable of violence. She also detailed their money woes and how she had been forced to use checks instead of cash to keep track of expenses down to the penny. But after Helen Brock's death, Joyce claims Matlick showered her with $100 bills. She also claimed that Matlick never stayed overnight in one of Helen's houses when she was in town, but he happened to on the weekend Helen disappeared. Furthermore, Joyce asserted that Matlick and Bailey had started speaking on the phone frequently in the weeks before Helen's disappearance, often for hours at a time. This isn't that unusual, until you consider that the two of them had never spoken on the phone before. After Helen's death, investigators also found toll receipts from the weekend of Helen's disappearance between Helen's estate outside Chicago and her farm in Ohio. Jack Matlick had submitted them to Helen's estate for reimbursement. But there's more. Donald Knorr, a groundskeeper, testified that on the weekend of Helen's disappearance, he stopped by the Brock estate to give Matlick an estimate for some tree work. Knorr walked around the back of the house to an open door where he saw Matlick with another man and a teenaged girl in an oversized dress and ill-fitting red wig, not unlike the one Helen had taken to wearing before her disappearance. If this is true, it would explain why and how Matlick lied about dropping Helen off at O'Hare Airport. He may have gone to the airport, but clearly it wasn't with Helen. It was with someone made to look like her. Nor also revealed that he knocked for several minutes at Helen's door and was ignored, even though he was no more than 20 feet away from Matlick and the others assembled inside. Then when he turned to leave, Matlick walked up behind him and said, there's something very important going on in the house right now. I will call you later. Matlick called him on February 20th and told him to return to the house the following Monday. Then on Monday, Matlick gave Nor a check for $950 for the tree trimming work and a $50 tip. When Nor asked why he was receiving a post-dated check for work he hadn't completed and a tip, Matlick lost his temper screamed, threatened him, and urged him not to speak to authorities. This theory is extremely compelling. For one thing, there are multiple witnesses to Matlick's devious behavior. He also had a history of violence and emotive. He was in dire financial straits and stood to personally benefit from Helen's death. However, Matlick was not known to be a criminal mastermind. In fact, it seems totally implausible that Matlick could have orchestrated and carried out the murder alone. Specifically, that he was able to kill Helen and dispose of the body without leaving any incriminating evidence. After all, this is the same Jack Matlick who couldn't even forge Helen's checks without getting caught. 
As for the toll receipts, while it's clear that Matlick drove to the farm in Ohio, it could have been for a number of reasons, including purging the house of any valuables. So while there's a great deal of evidence to suggest Matlick killed Helen himself, it just doesn't seem like he was capable of such a task. He would have needed the help of professionals. Our third theory proposes he got just that. The theory first came to light in 2002 when detectives received a call completely out of the blue from Joseph Plemons. Plemons was the con artist and Jane Gang associate who was supposedly present on the night Helen was killed, according to Theory One. By 2002, Plemons was somehow still in the horse business and living a quiet life in Pennsylvania. But he was racked with guilt and couldn't go on until he revealed the truth about what really happened to Helen. That's why he called detectives and unburdened himself of a secret he'd been keeping since 1977. His testimony combined the most compelling elements of the previous two theories we've discussed. This is what he claimed. The first part of the Bailey theory of the disappearance was true. Bailey did shop around for an assassin to take out Helen Brock. But when his price proved too low, he fled to Florida. In the meantime, Matlick arranged a deal with the Janes and the Spilatros. Matlick would pick Helen up from the Mayo Clinic and drive her back to Chicago while they burgled her house, taking her valuable jewelry, art, and millions in bearer bonds. Not only would this satisfy the gambling debts Matlick owed them, it would make them all very rich. Lee Reiter, the Jane Gang bodyguard, met Matlick upon his return to Chicago with Helen. The two men beat Helen nearly to death, stuffed her in the trunk of a car, and drove to Ken Hansen's stable. When they opened the trunk and discovered she was still alive, Hansen told Frank Jane to finish her off. Jane refused, so Hansen tossed the gun to Plemons, who did as he was told. Then, certain she was dead, they put her in the back of Kurt Hansen's station wagon and drove her to the steel mill in Gary, Indiana, where Helen's body was dumped into the furnace and turned into liquid steel. While the details of Helen's murder and disappearance in this theory are remarkably similar to the details posited in the first theory, this explains Matlick's role, which would have been essential in carrying out the plan. And it answers every question about motive, murder, and disappearance. Investigators shared this opinion. They considered Plemons' testimony so credible that they followed up on everything he said, and everything checked out, from Plemons' recollection of the cars used to the location and type of steel plant. Despite this, however, no new charges were brought against the suspects. Prosecutors, unlike the investigators, didn't find Plemons credible. They refused to retry the case. After all, this was the same Joseph Plemons who ratted out Richard Bailey in order to receive a reduced sentence. But when he did so, he wasn't incorrect. Richard Bailey did conspire to have Helen murdered. 
But it seems that Plemons felt guilty about pinning the entire affair on Bailey. He reaffirmed that Bailey had nothing to do with the actual murder. Also, in the years since the 1977 crime, Plemons had provided information linking his former associate, Ken Hansen, to the rape and murder of three boys. He'd proven that he had an active conscience. In fact, Plemons even confessed to his own role in Helen's death, naturally with the caveat that he would be immune from prosecution. Of all the theories we've examined relating to Helen Brock's murder, his story is the most plausible. The first theory was based on biased testimony and put an unsupported emphasis on Richard Bailey's role in the killing. The Matlick theory presents the clearest motive, but gives too much credit to Jack Matlick's intellect and skills as a criminal. The third theory, implicating Matlick, Bailey, and the Chicago Horse Mafia, is by far the strongest. Only by working together and coordinating information could these criminals have made Helen disappear forever. But we may never know for sure what happened to Helen Brock, Candy Harris. Her disappearance remains fraught with conflicting testimony and a lack of a smoking gun, or even to this day, a body. Unlike the confusion that still shrouds her disappearance, Helen Brock's legacy is a simple, clear one of love, caring, and philanthropy. Today, the Helen Brock Foundation continues her campaign to promote the welfare of animals and children. And all of Chicago remembers her as the lighthearted, dancing candy widow. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Gone for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Gone in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Gone was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Drew Cole, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.